Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, we've got a full plate on our hands. First, we've got the second spinoff from the Conjuring franchise, The Nun, as well as Jennifer Garner's return to action in Peppermint. Then I got the chance to do a dollar theater double feature and was able to see Leave No Trace, as well as the Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? So, let's get started. Whatever happens, whatever you may see or hear, don't stop praying. September 7th, rated R. I have never liked this series. I don't know if I made that clear. When I'm not sure. I think I was I was able to review the second one on the podcast. Um, I, I I remember talking about it at some yeah 2016. So it was my first year of the podcast, and I I I found it I found it ludicrous. It's it's the dumbest parts of horror, and it's the parts that are most laughable. And I and I'm I can't be scared by it. And if your intention is to scare me, then The Conjuring does a bad job. The the first one was able to have some semblance of you know tension and fear. The second one is a joke, and the spinoffs are all just as equally bad jokes. And I can't tell if the audi- if that's what the audience wants. And that's what they are being given, or if they're actually trying to be scary and they just suck at it. I don't know what what you know what it is. But suffice to say that the Conjuring franchise was born out of a couple of con artists, lest we forget. Ed and Lorraine Warren were two straight up con artists. You ask anybody about them, they will tell you the same. Again, we're treating them like the heroes against the other world, you know, the heroes against the supernatural and the paranormal, and they just aren't. No, they're, they're, they were actually con artists. You know, it's like trying to say that you know what the guys in you know not as bad as what the guys in uh, the Jim Jones did in Jonestown, but basically it, it would be like making a movie saying that Jonestown did did in fact work and they got off on a comet when in fact it was just a guy who took advantage of people and ended up murdering them. The Warrens aren't that bad, but they did take advantage of people, and they were, in fact, con artists. So I can't take your movie seriously when you're trying to tell me that they're your heroes. And after Annabelle so graciously spun off from this franchise and just took a a just gigantic turd on the genre, we decided to do another spinoff. This time for the recurring nun demon that Lorraine continues to see. And so we finally got our we got a hint in Annabelle Creation that it was that, it, that there was a demonic nun in Romania and here we finally get a chance to see it and we got nothing. We literally just sat there for nine, for 100 minutes or so and got nothing. Whatever tr- kind of origin they wanted to make for this franchise for this monster for this entity they failed at it because i don't really i never really gained anything new by knowing that it you know where the demon came from for whatever reason 
and the, the scares that they're trying to play off on this are stupid and telegraphed. They're telegraphed beyond, uh, you know, the point of reason. I, it's, a, it's so bad. It's so and people eat this crap up, and I don't understand. I don't know if horror fans just have are are just into the 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 uh what do you call it the the schlockiness of it that they want they know it's bad and they want it to be bad. They don't want it to be good. They will just take bad movies and that's okay for them, or they genuinely think this is scary. Because I, I I don't know. Did you just have you never seen a horror movie before? Are you just that easily scared? Like there are haunted houses run by high schoolers that are scarier than this movie was. At least high schoolers know how to use a space. My God, this whole movie is just them not knowing how to use a gothic abbey for their space. It's. It's mind-boggling just how badly they bungled trying to make a horror movie. And yet people just eat this crap up. It, it's, they love it. They love bad horror, apparently. Because they keep supporting this terrible, terrible franchise. And I don't understand why. I gen- if you're a fan of this franchise and you're listening... Give me a counterpoint because I have nothing to go off of because every entry besides that first one is actually bad. It is not good horror. It is bad filmmaking. It is bad horror. And yet people love this crap for some reason. They continue to support it for God knows what reason. So yeah, uh, what we get here is Vera Farmiga's sister... Which you think is going to play, because she looks exactly like her sister, you think it's going to play into the fact that, oh, this is also an origin story for Lorraine Warren. And no, she just happens to look like Lorraine Warren in this movie because the actors are related and it ties into nothing. If you're going to hire a family member to play a character and they look almost exactly like that family member, then why won't you do that? Why isn't it tying into the... I know they're. I know they can't exactly make up truth. I mean, they're already making up true fact, and they're already making up fa- you know stuff about this sort of true story in quotes. But it just it, it was just always there. Like she's gonna be Lorraine Warren, right? Like she looks exactly like Lorraine Warren, and no, no, it, it, they just hired her sister for no reason. It just It's not like the sister brought anything to the role. Literally any chick could have played this role. The sis, Vera Farmiga's sister did nothing to the, to, you know, for this role. So I don't know why you hire her when she looks exactly like her sister to not play like a younger version of her sister's character. Wouldn't that be the point? So yeah, it, this movie is uh, 75% film night for day, day for night, which is that basically that function where you hire, you put a blue filter on day shot, day, you know, fil- film shot in the day, and it's supposed to count as night. That way you can see what's going on during the, during night shots. And it's either that, or they, they, they try to get away with having like lamps and candles light, light way more than they are naturally able to. And all of their jump scares are telegraphed from a mile away. You can see it in the trailer how far away their jump scares are telegraphed. And I don't get, I don't get how this is appealing to anybody. 
What does this franchise offer that you couldn't get better from a better made horror series? The Insidious franchise isn't much better than this, and I still don't get how people are buying into this. I don't get the appeal. If you have, if, like, this isn't the worst I've seen this year. It is one of the worst horror movies I've seen this year for sure, but I don't, I don't get it. So if you're listening and you like this franchise and you liked this movie, I want to hear your opinion and I want you to write a, I want you to send me a counterpoint and let me know why you like it so I can present that to other listeners. I, I love feedback like that. If you liked the thing I liked, if, if you liked the thing I disliked, or disliked the thing that I did like, then let me know. I want to hear your opinions. Or maybe if you have some insight. I, I would love to hear have audience feedback for that sort of thing. So, so let me know what, you know what it is about this series and this, and this movie particularly that you liked. Because otherwise, I, I'm, 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 I'm left... With no words for this, because yeah, this is this isn't this is middle of the road when this move, series also brought us Annabelle and The Conjuring Two, so it's not as bad as those, but it's not as good as that first one. Like even the last that second Annabelle prequel was better than this, and I don't get why we need more spinoffs for this franchise when nothing is gained from it. It's not a coincidence that makes this area low crime. It is low crime because of her. <laughs> At least somebody's doing something. Find her. I don't care if you have to burn the city down. Watching someone take everything from you, it turns you into somebody else. Social media is lit up with support for her. She's a multiple homicide suspect. Not to them, she's not. Out, man, and now gone. How you really think this is gonna go? I will kill every one of you. And then I'll pretty much wing it from there. Man, this has been quite the post-Labor Day slump, hasn't it? First that trashy Conjuring spinoff, and then a direct-to-video movie that stars Jennifer Garner. Let's let's not kid ourselves. That's that's what this is. This is, that's all this is. It's a direct-to-video movie that got Jennifer Garner, and because it's from Jennifer Garner and the director of Taken, it managed to get a theatrical release. Otherwise, there's no reason for you to see this on the big screen. It does not care enough for for you for it to deserve to be on the big screen. Not that you need to have like a big budget even. You have to make it look like you want to be there though. This movie acts like it doesn't want to be there right now, you know? It's like that kid who's at, who's that you know who's been dragged to a family reunion it's just on his phone in the corner the whole time because he has no reason or desire to be there and and that's what this movie is pretty much it's it's Jennifer Garner is the only one who wants to be here and everyone else could care less because they don't they none of nobody actually cares about what they're doing on this in this movie uh the premise here is much like uh, much like the Punisher, uh, Jennifer Garner loses her family and goes on a path, you know, a a path of vengeance, to bringing down everybody who ruined her life, essentially. And whereas the Punisher had sort of a backstory and an, and, an, and an understanding of how he became how he came to be who he was, the fact that he was already kind of unhinged 
Uh, before that, you know, he's already kind of, you know, he was never purely mild-mannered. He definitely had some issues beforehand, but that loss, that trauma drove him into insanity. That was, That's the whole pathos behind the Punisher. He's driven to insanity by the, by just the, the, the chaos, the chaotic villainy of the universe. The fact that such great evils go, go on, go unchallenged it was what drove him to who he who we know him as and here it's just uh jennifer garner is a bank teller who goes crazy after her family is gunned down in front of her and she go takes five years to become the punisher now the punisher did have the ex- i was wondering if they were going to go the punisher route and say that oh she's ex-military or something because that's what the punisher is he is ex he's ex- usually ex-marine uh, although I I think it depends on who's writing him, how they make him out to be, you know, like what branch of the military he's part of. But I think they go with Marine for uh, Frank Castle. Here it's just mild mannered bank teller goes on a world goes undercover on a world tr- on a world tour, essentially going from location to location across the world, training to become an assassin, and. It, it's it's dumb. It's a dumb premise. I'll give it that. But plenty of premises have done bet, done more with less. So the premise isn't the isn't the selling point. The action should be. And despite the fact that we do have, I believe, an R rated movie on our hands, it definitely has points where it would ra- it feels like it was trying to make a PG thirteen cut. Like they never went full on with the R rating. It never allowed itself to be as violent as it could have been. It has an R rating and there are some gory scenes in there, but none of it really goes the goes to the limit. It never tries tries all that hard to be like like over the top guns blazing sort of action. The action is actually pretty weak, especially when it tries to go hand to hand. Unfortunately, it feels like Garner is not as good as a stunt woman as she used to be when she was on Alias or even back when they did Elect. I don't know. I, th- I never rewatched Electra. I planned to, and then it got away from me. But I'll get into that anyway. Uh, Jennifer, Gar- but Jennifer Garner is capable of doing action. It's just. This movie does not know how to shoot action. And despite the fact that this is from the director of Taken, all of that kinetic energy, all of that all of that oomph that went into Taken that made it such a cult classic ha- is not in this movie. Like, they could have. Jennifer Garner has the chops to, to be sort of a Punisher-style leading, leading lady. The story isn't here. The writer for this was also a writer on London Has Fallen, and he's got a new one coming out this year, which I never saw on the release schedule, called Replicas, which was that one with Alice Eve and Keanu Reeves, where he cloned his wife, essentially. And I have no idea if, it, if it's ever going to see a, an, an American release, but suffice to say, this dude... This dude also... But the dude also wrote the Punisher Dirty Laundry short, too. So, this dude is not doesn't seem to be going as good with 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 his feature feature length films because peppermint should have been a great taken style punisher style revenge action you know bonanza and yet it's so weak it is it it, it can't 
do go the distance. It it, it doesn't, it, or at least it doesn't try to go the distance. Sadly, so here we've got Jennifer Garner giving it her all, trying to do something with this role, and yet everything everyone else is like, eh, I guess this, this is just a paycheck for me. You know, it's the contractual obligation bit for them. I'm contractually obligated to be in this movie, so mine is like there's some Ike Barinholtz looking dude and. He's, it's already, unfortunately, the trailers already kind of gave away the twist with him. If you watch the trailers for this, you pretty much saw a better, better version of this movie than what was actually released. And it's, it genuinely is sad to see a, a decent premise bungled in such a way as it was here. So I don't know what happened, whether it was just the script wasn't as good or the director couldn't handle it, but or maybe producers kind of declawed it and kept it from being as as good as it could have been. But whatever happened, just it, it it's lazy and it doesn't like what what was the uh, Pierre Morel, uh, the director? What else has he done besides Taken in this um, B- District B thirteen? I heard good things about that. The Gunman uh, from Paris with Love. Um, he did apparently a remake of the Clan of the Cave, a new adaptation of the Clan of the Cave Bear for a TV. But yeah, the, this dude is not all that great of a director, it seems like, because he's never been able to recreate the greatness that was taken. I think part of that is because Luc Besson probably had more reason why Taken worked than the director did. Because when you take, because when Luc Besson isn't tied, was was Paris? Another Luc Besson co-production. Let me see. Cast and crew. Because that one was middling as well. No, apparently Luc Besson was a writer on it, and he do- and he did come up like he came up with the story, and he was a- and but he wasn't a producer, but he did have his hands on it, and yet it couldn't compete with Taken. I think Taken was just lightning in a bottle. And the, when they try to do it again, they don't have the components to recreate th- what worked about this. So, yeah, Peppermint, I, I don't, uh, people are like hating this movie. They think it's one of the worst things of the year. And I can't say I blame them because besides Garner, it is, it is just a complete direct-to-video movie. But I, I didn't, I, did, I, I save my hate for things that are much more objectionable. Things like show dogs that have no reason to exist, or things like I—I f- I was more offended by the Nun because it's a horror movie that presents no scares and and it, and can't, and is completely inept at being a horror movie. I had I took more umbrage with Mile Twenty Two than this movie because Mile Twenty Two is genuinely offensive to me, both as an action movie and in what it's trying to and the whole impetus behind it so yeah i i didn't hate peppermint it's not good i'm not going to defend it at all because the only one who was any good in it was jennifer garner and everything else was definitely disposable so i i can't tell you to go see this movie i can only say you could probably just watch taken again because this movie isn't going to deliver on any of its promises Did he even try? I can't tell. 
tend not to use Rotten Tomatoes as a measuring stick for uh, movies because critics, I mean, number one, movie criticism shouldn't be broken down into binaries enough to make a, or like any kind of numerals in order to break down into a calculable rating for a movie. You should ultimately, the best, I think the best, um, actually, I think there are two, um, well, actually, three models that I think work for overall for grading movies. Number one, the big one, the one that kind of influenced a lot of movie critic scores is the thumbs up, thumbs down from uh, Ebert and either Roper or Siskel. And I think the second one after that is the score that uh, the Double Toasted crew give uh, that they started off with Spill, and that was the first time I saw it. And that was the the kind of scoring line between um, FU, uh, which was added after seeing terrible movies. I think it was one of the Freeburg and Seltzer movies that they saw that they said, no, you know what? Some old BS is not going to cut it. How about an FU? That's, and that's their lowest score. It's when the movie genuinely offends them. BS is when they don't, when they when a movie is bad. Rental is when you'd be, you feel fine renting it from Redbox or Amazon or something. Uh, matinee is when you can see it in theaters, but you don't need to pay full price. Full price, and then Better Than Sex. is it, Better Than Sex is their highest rating, and they very rarely gave it out. I think The Dark Knight was the first one they actually gave the rating to, because seeing the movie, and, and Corey still holds by the rating, the, the Dark Knight, watching The Dark Knight was better than sex. And I kind of dig that rating because it goes, goes along with the, um, the idea that you can break down into what you're willing to pay for it. So are you willing to rent, pay to rent it, which is a couple of bucks, uh, matinee, which is a little bit steeper, but still, but still feasible, or, or are you willing to pay full price to see it, which is like ten to ten to twenty dollars, depending on your theater and your location. And then some old BS, you don't, you can skip it. And then FU, where the movie is genuinely terrible and and offensive. So, I, I agree with that. I think that's a decent scoring system itself. It's not numeric, but it's it has a you know it has a reference point for you. You can reference to how much you're willing to pay for it, and it's a solid system. The other one I dig is the uh, now playing podcast one, and that is it, it, they kind of play around with it, but they do have they are more in line with uh, the, the Ebert. Uh, Siskel Ebert Roper model where it's either recommend not recommend and they have played around with it lighter greens so it's not a, a strong recommend and then lighter reds pinks are, are lighter not recommends or depend if they're more tepid on the feeling because there are some where they're full on not recommend and they cannot stay in the movie they cannot recommend people go see it or there are strong recommends where they encourage people to see the movie that's the kind of model I've Try to go for. I encourage you to see it, or I tell you to skip it. And 
and then they've and then of course they've added the brown arrow, which is a down arrow that's colored brown for crap, and it's a so bad it's good movie, something like The Room or Howard the Duck or The Birdemic. That those are brown arrow grade movies for them, and I don't actually I don't think they've covered Birdemic. There's not a third entry in the series for them to cover it, <laughs> but um. I will say that um, trying to grade movies numerically, giving give them a score rating, give them a star rating, it's it's debatable because you can't quantify mo- mo- your enjoyment of a movie is strictly subjective. It is how you can uh, you could objectively grade a movie based on its quality, but a move but uh, movies are an art form, and the best way and you can't grade art. Beyond the objectivity of it. You can grade how well it's done. But ultimately not all art needs to be well done. In order to be moving and touching. And, and, and emotional. You know. And so I say this because Rotten Tomatoes has only two 100% certified fresh movies this year. One I'll be covering next. The one I'll be covering next. Won't You Be My Neighbor. Is a 99%, meaning there is one holdout from keeping, won't you be my neighbor, from being 100% certified fresh. And I'm going to find this this asshole right now. Because most people agree the movie was phenomenal. There There are two rotten scores from guys I've never heard of. Who complained about it not being a well-rounded enough documentary? Uh, okay, and and even then, even then, it was a C and a six point six. That's considered rotten. So this movie should be one hundred percent, but based on Rotten Tomato, like even on even on tomato, even on the tomato meter, you don't go under if uh, you don't go rotten until you're under a 60%. And yet these two these two guys who gave middling reviews of the docu- from it as a documentary stand from a documentary standpoint is considered rotten? Like that's why rotten tomato I can't give rotten tomatoes credit for anything because it's so Debate. Everything is so debatable, and their new and their algorithms to calculate these scores is is trash. So yeah, thing things that are not as well rated by critics than this movie. Won't you be my neighbor? Uh, eighth grade, Mission Impossible Fallout, Crazy Rich Asians, Incredibles Two, Black Klansman, Sorry to Bother You, Searching, Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. Ant-Man and the Wasp. Well, those are down into the 80s now. Um, but yeah, Searching, Crazy Rich Asians, Sorry to Bother You, Black Klansmen, Incredibles 2, Mission Impossible Fallout, 8th Grade and Won't You Be My Neighbor, couldn't make it to 100%. Meanwhile, the only two that, are, that could are a documentary about Alexander McQueen and this movie, Leave No Trace. Meanwhile, things that the audience has enjoyed more than this movie... Won't You Be My Neighbor, 8th Grade, Mission Impossible, Fallout, three, uh, Incredibles 2, Crazy, Crazy Rich Asians, eh, Crazy Rich Asians are about the same, and then Searching. So, all of those movies that couldn't make it 100% with critics, the audience could, could take or leave. The audience is 
it, he's eating it up. Meanwhile, Leave No Trace is is scored 100. This is why the disparity between critics and audiences exists. Critics have this sort of ivory tower, and not to say that, not to say that education is a bad thing, but there is an elitism within critical circles. The idea that because you've studied film, because you're in amongst filmmakers, that you're an insider, that you do, that your that your bias is towards the artistic and to you know things things that are more highbrow. It's why it's the kind of thing that Kyle Calgren makes fun of in the initial version of his show, Brows Held High. The idea of the the you know stereotypical art critic, and that's why he was always and, and that's the thing. If you talk to Kyle, and he has become more down to earth as he moved from being a parody of the highbrow critic to being a really really good video essayist. He has become much better at presenting his ideas and presenting his his thoughts and opinions and commenting on various topics. Like even um, I highly recommend Kyle's uh, Watermelon Woman uh, review, where he breaks down the history of erasure in film by, of not only just black black women. I mean, we go erasure from women to black women to queer black women with a lesbian black filmmaker having to make her own faux documentary to find a another old film made by a black lesbian. Watermelon moves watermelon watermelon the watermelon woman sounds especially good as well, which I I I feel like I need to check it out after seeing that that uh review of his, but I haven't had the time to sadly and I and it's, I don't know how widely available it is if it's Available to stream like on one of my on one of the platforms I have now. I'll have to check it out soon. But if it's like I have to go through like Netflix DVD in order to get it, then it might take some time. Uh, suffice to say that he broke that down. He even brought in, um, I think he brought in on that one uh, his his very lovely girlfriend um, Jordan Searles, uh, who I've brought up on the show before, and she does all. She also does amazing breakdowns of that sort of stuff. And the idea is that you don't need to be elitist, highbrow, have this sort of like exclusive mentality that a lot of people in that sort of academic world seem to have and still present things academically. Lindsay Ellis has definitely taken this uh, tactic as well. You can see in her later vids where she's uh, embraced the video essay as a format and is able to utilize her academic studies and her and her uh train and her education in order to present those topics in a way that that mass audiences can understand by using them to critique things like transformers and disney live action remakes and um what's another thing she did recently what are some of other what are some of Lindsay's other movies recently uh she just did uh, the history of the, of the movie musical, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, The Hobbit, the three-part of The Hobbit, Bright. So, I mean, she's able to take these, these, these topics, these ideas that are presented, that are get, you know, that people who are trained in film and film studies to understand and present it to, to wider audiences in the form of these video essays. And so... 
I don't like the idea that things are, you know, that some things are just, um, that, you know, critics can be so easily taken by, you know, a movie that isn't technically all that good, but for some reason they eat it up because of some academic standpoint, and yet audiences are like, this, this is okay. Like, think of, think of this. Best Picture winner a couple of years back, uh, 2011, I believe, was a silent film called The Artist. You ask anybody else that year, uh, let's take, I think that was the 2011 Oscars, which means it was the 2010, which means it was 2010. Yeah, two, okay, 2011 films won the two, 2012 Oscar. Uh, let's take a look at films that also came out in 2011. 2011 in film. 2011 films. Here we go. Or, here we go. Let's just do 2011 in film. Let's take a look at some of the stuff that came out that year. Uh, besides, I mean, you look at the blockbuster stuff, you see Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, Transformers, Pirates of the Caribbean, Twilight Saga, Mission Impossible, uh, Ghost Protocol, uh, Fast Five, Hangover Part 2, Smurfs, Cars 2. So, yeah, not exactly the most highbrow stuff, but things that, things that were doing good, things that were critically acclaimed that were honestly better than the artist that year... The Descendants, which won Best Drama from the Golden Globes, because apparently the artist was considered a comedy, because guess the artist was a comedy. Um, Moneyball, I hear good things about. Um, trying to think what all the... Let me take a look at the nominees for the Oscars that year. 83rd Academy Awards, King's Speech, Inception. I would argue it's a better movie than, than uh, The Artist. Um, Toy Story 3, better movie than The Artist. Uh, what are the best picture nominees? 127 Hours, Black Swan, didn't see him. Fighter, didn't see it. Kids Are All Right, didn't see it. Social Network, I'm very, I've become very lukewarm on the social network. I think it's wildly overrated. Uh, King's Speech, I hear good things about. True Grit, way better. Uh, even the previous, even this director's previous movie, Winter's Bone, I hear good things about, but I couldn't speak to whether or not it's better than The Artist. Suffice to say that the artist is basically a fan film for silent pictures. It tries to make a silent movie in using present day sensibilities and and techniques, and it's a nice gesture to a silent film. It was not the best movie to come out in 2011. So the idea that you would that you would that you would honor the that you would honor the artist over way wait okay no wait that's that's previous year sorry <laughs> uh let's take a look at 84th that was that year's academy awards here is the winner for the artist same year the descendants better the help problematic hugo better midnight in paris still haven't seen it moneyball still haven't seen it tree of life garbage warhorse middling uh this could be girl the dragon tattoo Better movie than The Artist. Uh, Descendants, Ides of March. Better movie than The Artist. I'll say that. Tigger Taylor, Soldier Spy. Better movie than The Artist. Uh, Margin Call. Never saw it. Separation. Didn't see it. Uh, 
not familiar with. Um, oh yeah, that was the year that only two songs were nominated for best original song, and so The Muppets is technically an Academy Award winning film because their competition was Rio. Wow, that was a bad year. Uh, but Hugo, Hugo was definitely better than the artist, and the girl with the dragon tattoo better than the artist. Uh, Moneyball. Haven't seen it, but I could probably assume it's better than the artist. So, the idea that the artist was the best thing to come out that year, when I could tell you already that it it was just fine. Like it was a cute send up to uh to a silent film, but it wasn't great. Um, the Grey, better movie than The Artist. Ghost Protocol, better movie than The Artist. Um, trying to, I'm digging through. There's a bunch of stuff like In Time, Harold and Kumar. Okay, yeah, those aren't better than The Artist. Uh, Puss in Boots, Adventures of Tintin. Yeah, those aren't better than The Artist. Um, Thing Remake, The Footloose Remake, Dolphin Tale, Human Centipede 2. The Straw Dogs remake. Johnny English Reborn. So yeah, 2011 wasn't the best year. A year good things about salmon fishing in the Yemen. That could have been... That could have easily qualified for best picture. Um, uh, oof, anonymous. Take your Taylor Soldier Spy. Like I said, better than... <laughs> better than the artist. Uh, I hear good things about A Dangerous Method. I don't know how good it was, though. Uh... Oof, Carnage from Roman Polanski. Oof. Um, Eyes of March was fine. Uh, Conan the Barbarian, Glee the movie, Glee the concert movie, Rise of the Planet of the Apes! That was a better movie than The Artist. Uh, Captain America the First Adventure. That was better than The Artist, but I get why that's not going to be best picture. It wasn't the best picture that year either. Um, oof, Mr. Popper's Penguins, Green Lantern. Uh... Judy and the Moody, Judy Moody and the Not Bummer Summer, X Men First Class, better than the artist. Uh, Drive, people like I, I'm, I'm surprised that didn't get any love at the, at the awards at the awards shows that year because that was that was beloved by that whole. I just realized why the whole reason why the artist won, it was pushed by the Weinstein's. This is why the Oscars are a joke, people. All it takes is a douchebag producer. To pay pay up the pay up the Academy to say vote our movie the best and oh, that's all it takes because yeah there's so much better stuff that year that year it's what 2011 wasn't a great year but there were way better movies coming out than the artist the artist was a cute send up it was not the best movie of that year so. It re- so yeah, it, it that's why I, do- I can't take these sort of highbrow critiques and the, the that sort of that sort of mentality seriously because it'll vote it'll ta- you know it'll say oh this movie is clearly su- the you know superior when all it is is just it placates to their interests. The only reason the artist the only reason the artist did so well is because the Weinstein's pushed it on the Academy. And it placated to their ego. The fact that it's about the history of Hollywood and filmmaking. And so I say all that because this, this movie is a 
100% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. But I have nothing to say about it because it's actually pretty boring. I don't have anything to say. Like, what? Wh- I don't. This was, it was fine. It was cool, I guess. It did, did it need to be a hundred? Was hundred percent? Seriously? Like, it's even on an, even objectively, it's not. It's not all that great. It's kind of weak because aside from Ben Foster, everyone feels like they weren't actors. They were just people they pulled off the street. Like the, they're saying the girl uh, Tomasi, I believe her name is. Um, like I think this is her first movie, and sh- they're saying like she's such a tour de force, young Gen- uh, Jennifer um, Lawrence, uh, and Pixie Hannon, Shortland Street, Lucy Lewis can't lose. This is her. This is the first time I'm hearing of her. Uh, apparently, she was Astrid in the Battle of Five Armies. So it looks like she's a Kiwi actor, and oh, she's going to be in the Top Gun remake or sequel or whatever. Oof. Um, True history of the Kelly Gang, the King, Jojo Rabbit. Um, but yeah, there is. Apparently, she's better known in on uh, Kiwi television. Uh, she's only 18, but she's really wooden in this movie she is not a good actress i don't know where they're saying jennifer like jennifer lawrence and winter's bone in the hunger games did have some decent acting chops that you could see she was going to be a a good actress down the line all i got from this girl is from thomas and mckenzie thomas and mckenzie i have no idea how to pronounce that um but all i got from her was she knows how to read the lines like, she gets better as the movie goes along and she has to stand up to her father. But otherwise, it's like, do you know where my dad is? I'm trying to find my dad. I want to stay with my dad. Hey, dad. What's going on, dad? Have you seen my dad? My dad. My dad. This movie is just Radical Soda saying my dad. Which is the other killer thing that I couldn't get. If you know, if you know the uh, video game channel on YouTube, Radical Soda, that dude looks exactly like Thomas and McKenzie. And it was throwing me off. The fact that they're both Kiwis. They both have the same look about them. I was waiting for Thomas to just talk about Sonic. Sonic. Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> uh, living in the... You know, like at some point while they're walking... One of the montages is going to feature... Living in the city. <sighs> that's only for... That's an inside joke for all the people who watch Radical Soda. And if you haven't already, go check out Radical Soda. He's amazing. I found out about him because people were saying, here's a better, here's John Tron, but without any of John Tron's douchebaggery. And Radical Soda got way better down, down the line and is making some quality videos at this point. And I love the guy. I have yet, unless something terrible happens between now and when this comes out and down the line, Radical Soda is good people and he makes great videos and you gotta check him out. Living in the city. It's like a roller coaster. Anyway, I'm talking about things other than this movie because that's how little this movie impacted me. Like, you know what this is? This is 2018's Pursuit of Happiness. Everyone praised Pursuit of Happiness uh, for for its for Will Smith's performance and the how like oh the struggle based on this real life guy and all that really is all both really have in common are it's a homeless dad. Forcing their child into into homelessness in pursuit of something that they can, that they have no guarantee of attaining. So you're forcing your child to also be homeless with you 
because of some reason. And at least in Pursuit of Happiness, he had a goal in mind. In this movie, Ben Foster is, like, brain damaged or something. I didn't catch the very beginning. I don't know if they explained it at all. But, like, he's a veteran who is suffering from, well, I'm assuming, partly partly post-traumatic stress. But he wants to live off in the woods and be away from society. And whenever they try to integrate him, he pushes back and wants to get away. So I don't know what his deal is. But he should not be dragging his child along for the ride. His child should be... Just because, I mean, the child lost its mom, uh, her mom. And it sucks that... You know, you don't want to put her in the foster care system, but you don't want her to be homeless. But if her choices are foster care and homeless, depending on where the fo- I mean, this is Oregon. There's no guarantee that she wouldn't end up in, like, some white supremacist ho- household. So, oof. Tough call. But suffice to say that Ben Foster is a terrible, terrible father. And the whole time you're just like, dude, dude, just get help. Just, just go find help. Like all, once they get caught and they're and they're back in society, he's given a job and he is able to live, you know, in a small like single level house and go about his business. He just has to keep up to date with people to say how you're doing, how's everything going, and he's like, I don't want to do that. I want to think my own thoughts, and it's like, no one's saying you can't. Like that's why I'm wondering what his deal was if he wants to go full prepper or if he's like so anti-social to the point where he just wants to be away from everybody in which case he does like okay that guy the farmer who who gave him a home wants him to go to church and yeah i get that you may don't want to want to go to church so yeah but by the end they find like a trailer park and nothing against trailer this isn't even a jag against trailer parks because hey the people that they find are, like, amazing people. Like, one woman's a beekeeper. They've got a couple that play guitar and sing songs for everybody. And everybody's, like, everyone's friendly to each other and cares about each other. Nobody seems to be an outright douchebag. And yet the, and yet Ben Foster that, and given basically a home away from everybody, but that he has a small community that cares about him and wants to see him do well. And even then, he's just like... I have to leave. We have to leave. Pack your things. We, we we gotta go. They have no. They don't. No need for cell phones. They're well taken care of. They have good people surrounding them that they can have good. Com, you know, good. They have good conversation with and, and connect with well. Both times the daughter was happy, and Ben Foster decided, nope, nah, can't do this. Can't. Not gonna do it. And like I would have preferred. That that he left his daughter behind because he you can't force kids you should never supplant your problems onto your kids you should never make your kids carry your problems as their burden that's what that's what the guy did in Pursuit of Happiness that's what Ben Foster does here you should never force a kid to help carry whatever burden it is you're carrying. And I, I get that Ben Foster is going through a bad time. He shouldn't force his kid through that. He should, like, like what? He has no direct. He has no direct family. He has no. His wife has no direct family. They knew him. They she knew. He was old enough to know her mother before she passed. 
what, there was nobody in their family that they could, that could have taken care of her while Ben Foster goes off to deal with his crap? Like, here's the... To tie this into my own personal life, my dad's uh, uncle, my grandfather's brother, his kids suffered from a lot of um, mental health issues. Some of them were fine. Some of them could, you know, some of them were were very well, fun- very highly functioning. They could, they're living well enough in society. Some had some stumbling blocks, but were able to function for the most part. One dude, one of my, one of my dad's cousins went off to Oregon to live in a tent and ended up dying from diseases brought on by exposure to the elements, essentially. I think, if I'm not mistaken. But he definitely, you know, he definitely died living off on, living off in the wilds of Oregon. So I get that this is apparently a thing that some people do. But the one thing my dad's cousin never did, brought along family members to do it with him. Whatever he was going through, whatever issues he had, he did that. He care, he he did things for himself. Like Into the Wild would have been a way worse movie if it also turned out um, Emil Hirsch brought along his daughter to do this whole fakakta thing with him. So right there, so right at the premise, this movie's you know going again. I'm already not. A fan of this movie. I don't find Ben Foster's struggle all that compelling, considering that when he's given the opportunity to seek help, he never does it. He's just, for whatever, and maybe there was something in the very beginning of the movie that explained it, but I was a little bit late to the screening, and I never got why ben Fo- what Ben Foster's deal was, and why he's making his kid suffer with him. That's the other part I don't get, is that why bring the kid along with you if you're going to suffer? If you're going to make her suffer. And when, when she's given the chance to have a normal life, you take that away from her. Like, I don't know why he didn't just, like, the first, like on the farm. Like, I don't know why he didn't just run away. Why did he drag his daughter along to also be miserable in the wilderness and, take, and essentially take care of him because he can't handle his crap when whatever he's dealing, because he can't deal with whatever he's dealing, he doesn't want to deal with whatever he's dealing with. He can't seek help for whatever his problem is. I don't, I don't, I feel like I'm missing so many things to care about Ben Foster's character. Because all I can see is a guy who drags his daughter along to live in the wilderness because he's got issues. And fine, you don't want to deal with your issues. You're a grown man, you don't have to. Don't make other people suffer because you don't want to deal with your issues. That's all. Uh, so yeah, the everyone besides Ben Foster is a pretty wooden actor. And... And the movie, I, I, finding out it was based on a novel made sense because this feels like the most direct adaptation from a book to a movie that I've ever seen. I don't even know if it is, but this movie re- plays like, a, like you're reading a novel, not like you're watching a movie. That's the biggest thing I got from this. The way it plays out does not feel cinematic. It feels novellish. Novel- it feels novellic? Cinematic? Novetic? Novelic? Literary. Literary. There we go. That's, that's the word for it. It feels very literary. It feels very... It feels like you're reading a novel, not like you're watching a movie. It's, uh, for a better idea of the, what I'm trying to talk about, look at the novel for Jurassic Park versus the movie. 
the movie plays out like a movie does. It was adapted to play like a, a big budget tentpole movie. The, the novel is much more heady. It plays, it, it plays like a treatise on genetic engineering and corporate, and corporate research and development and corporate culture, especially. The, the movie downplays that aspect and makes it an a underlying theme, but the main emphasis of the movie is the stuff that is more cinematic, the dinosaurs and the park breaking down. That's why the movie works better than the book in a lot of cases, because, and because for a lot of people, they love seeing the park break down, the entropy break in, and the fact that corporate culture is imploding on itself because of its own greed, thanks Newman. But you're not going to really get that from the novel because the novel is not as well planned, laid out as the, mo- as the movie was. Like, the kids are way more annoying in the novel, from what I understand. And even Alan Grant isn't as likable as Sam Neill was in the Jurassic Park movie. So, so, to ha- so, so the transition from novel to screen is a transition from what works for one medium to another. And for something like this... Sure, the novel, people who read the novel will probably like seeing it adapted for them to be to basically see a visualization for the words that they read, but it doesn't mean the it doesn't make the movie play well for movie going audiences, you know. So the movie, and that's not even to say the movie is bad. The movie is fine, but it was very overhyped. Critics overpraised this movie. And in doing so, when audiences got to get a chance to see it, they're gonna, their expectations are going to be like, well, this is supposed to be the best thing to come out all year. Let's check it out. That was good. But people have seen way better this year. I've seen way better this year. And one of those movies that was way better this year, I'm going to talk about now because I got nothing more to say for this one. The greatest thing that we can do is to help somebody know that they're loved. And capable of loving. Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor? Oh, this movie. This movie threw in a, a monkey wrench into my entire top seven list for 2018 because I don't know. I need to compare it again to. Movies like Avengers Infinity War, Sorry to Bother You, and Black Panther to understand what I consider to be my favorite movie of the year. Because I, I can't say for sure. Because those are those right now those are the top running. Uh, Sorry to Bother You, Avengers, and Black Panther. Meanwhile, Mr. Rogers comes in and just like squeezes it. Eh, don't mind me, I'm just gonna gonna saddle right in next to all y'all uh now where do we want to sit on this little order here (laughs) uh yeah mr rogers just comes walking it waltzing in just being like i I, i'm trying to figure out where i want i I would like to sit because i believe i my spot should be right there above you mr you know mr boots uh bootsy boots 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 riley mr boots (laughs) so um yeah, I, I don't, I don't know where to put this. Suffice to say that this is going to be my one of my top seven of the year lit. It's going to make my top seven list. 
but I don't know where. I, I need. I think I need a. I think I need to. That this movie is just about available. This movie is starting to become available for for a home video. So if you're so if you're hearing this, at least rent it. At least rent this movie and watch it for yourself because it is a beautiful tribute to Fred Rogers and it's explored a lot of stuff that most people probably didn't know about the guy. Like they like they remind you that he was a Presbyterian ordained Presbyterian minister. And he was a registered Republican. And yet, he was anti-Vietnam War. He talked about, he was, he acknowledged, you know, he wanted to talk to people about the assassination of of Bobby Kennedy. He, he openly, you know, opposed racism. The only thing that made him more in line with, with, uh, with Republicans at that time was he was not willing to allow his uh, Francois Clemens, the, uh, the the actor who plays Officer Clemens on the show, to be openly gay in in his own, in his private life. Like when there was a story that when Francois was caught at a Pittsburgh uh, gay club, uh, Fred told him he couldn't be there, go there anymore, and he actually advised Francois to marry a marry and get you know marry a marry a woman, and. It made Francois miserable, but Fred and Fred did come to understand that what he did was wrong. And they do, they they kind of downplay it, but at, when you look into it, Fred definitely understood that for, trying to force Francois into a heterosexual relationship and lifestyle was going to make him unhappy. And that's what that's not what he wanted for his friend. He wanted his friend to be happy, and he accepted his friend for who he was. And as from what I can tell, Francois, ne- like, even Francois, like, there's even, they, they, they talk more about whether or not Mr. Rogers was gay than uh, his thoughts on gay people in general. But he, from what I can, from what they talk about, the only things that ever really hurt Mr. Rogers was bullying and violence. Those were the things he, it's why he started his television series because he saw slapstick comedy and sort of brain dead clowning as, as what, as what were, as what got away with is what children's entertainment got away with at the time. And he said, we can do better. And so that's how he ended up developing Mr. Rogers neighborhood to come up with a children's programming show that engaged children on their level. And that's the thing. He, talked with child psychologists at the time and he gained a very deep understanding of how a child of how a child's brain works and he and you can even tell like he did try to do a an adult show old friends new friends or new friends old friends uh however the phrasing is on that one but he did try to do a an interview show with adults and you could kind of tell that people were put off by him. He never really clicked with adults. He had a better interview style with kids, and he had a better understanding of how a child's mind works. He was a he could he had easily qualified for a child for a for a degree in child psychology or development development psychology. And he was always, you know, very warm and inviting. And he could always get you know understand kids on their level and speak to them as 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 kid but acknowledge not never talking down to them like there's a scene there's a shot in this there there's a you know there's footage from this movie where mr Ro- where fred using Dan- the daniel tiger puppet daniel stripes striped 
the Daniel Tiger puppet. And he was talking to a kid through Daniel Tiger and asking the kid about himself. And he, the kid opened up to him about a pet who was run over and ended up dying. And Daniel Tiger comforted the kid and said, I'm so, that, 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 would, that would be really scared and acknowledges the kid's feelings. And Mr. Rogers be- had a better understanding of how to reach kids than pretty much every person working in children's entertainment. And he, be- I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if he became one of the influence, one of the influences for things like Sesame Street and Arthur and so much of PBS's programming because he got kids. He understood kids, and he knew never to shot like. Fun fact, for those who didn't know, like, my mom brought it up, too. My mom brought it up when I said I saw the movie. She said, she, she told me, she asked me, oh, did, did it talk about the, the Vietnam War? I'm like, yeah. His first episode was about the Vietnam War. It was literally a correlate, an allegory for the Vietnam War. He did not give an F. It's like, nah, we're talking about this. Bobby Kennedy is assassinated. Oh, God. Uh, oh, man, that's terrible. We got to talk about this. And then the Challenger, the Challenger exploded. He wanted to talk about it. And even he, they, even after he retired the show, PBS wanted them to come back and comfort us and, and talk with us after 9-11. Even though he himself was shook to his core, he, he was willing to come back and talk to us because we needed to, to hear from Mr. Rogers in that time of our lives because we were culturally, we had undergone such trauma. And who knows if... More people had paid attention to the lessons being taught by Mr. Rogers. We may not be in the mess we are today. I mean, because that's the thing. You see in the last, in the last couple of decades, people are, have been undermining his message and trying to overcome it by pl- playing to what comes more naturally. Fear-mongering and hate-mongering and divisiveness. And people would much rather... You know, divide us because that means they're much able, much, much easier to uh, exploit. Think about it. Corporations would much rather have us be divided and complacent and willing to buy from them rather than to have us be you know, decent human beings. They don't want to talk about, they don't want, you know, like that's the other thing is that during the 80s, he revamped, you know, when he revamped his show, he saw the rise in commercialization of, of toys. Like even back in the when he started the show, he talked about he, there was they showed an old fifties um, commercial for a sound a gun a plastic gun with sound effects, and he's like, "This is what we're selling to our children. This is we're teaching them to be." It was a very, very anti capitalist message from one Mister Fred Rogers. The idea that he did not like the idea of children being sold to. Which has become the basis for most of our economy at this point. Selling to children. And damn if he wasn't right. Damn if he didn't call it. Damn if he did not call it. Like, we, we almost need a Fred Roger. We almost need the Mr. Rogers to come in and talk to us about accepting tra- tra- you know, gay and trans people for who they are as people. And not giving in to microtransactions and YouTube culture. Like, we need a – at this day and age, we need a Fred Rogers. Arguably, I think uh, the current Fred Rogers are uh, three lovely, lovely brothers, three good, good boys from Huntington, Ma- Huntington, West Massachusetts, Huntington, West Virginia. I would argue, while they're a bit more – they can get a bit more crass, 
Nobody wants to be as wholesome, as accepting, and as approachable and lovable as Mr. Rogers, as the McElroy brothers. They are the heirs apparent to the, to, to the wholesomeness and the loving. Like they, The only thing they haven't done is gone full uh, educational. They are they simply they simply promote thing they they think they go for comedic effect. But at the same time, through their efforts, they have shown to be much more accepting, much more and have have gone have gone to teach so many great things socially to younger generations that then they prop that then that, that that's why I kind of compare them to Mr. Rogers. It's not the sa- it's teaching those same kind of Social lessons that Mr. Rogers wanted to do. Teaching kids about how to control their emotions. They do show the clip where one of the senators was dead set on cutting funding for PPS. And Fred Rogers wrote, uh, read out his lyrics to a song about controlling your emotions. And the senator, who was already dead set on cutting funding, decided, you know what? Yeah, you got, screw it. Here's $20 million. You got it. Fred Rogers single-handedly saved PBS, you know, from Nixon's cutting board, and he really is. Just, he led such a fascinating life. And like I mentioned in the last segment, um, there are some got people apparently, you know, some critics didn't like that it wasn't as in depth as it wanted, as as they expected from a documentary. Apparently, they wanted a dissertation on the life of Fred Rogers. And I didn't go in wanting that. I wanted to know more about Fred Rogers. And I learned, I, I understood who Fred Rogers was better than I ever possibly could have beforehand. This movie showed us, laid bare, all of Fred Rogers for us. The only thing I had more questions about was the homophobia and whether or not he was. Thankfully, he was not outwardly homophobic. He never seemed to support homophobia and in fact the church that he was a member of and and you know probably was trained under trained through or under it was a it was one of it, it was a it was a presbyterian church that was very accepting of gay congregants so he, he was never outwardly homophobic whether or not he you know had qualms with that because he was a very religious man whether or not he took issue with that or whether or not he let that slide because that's not how you get to understand people. That's not what being a Christian was to him, was judging them for their lifestyle. Because if that was the case, why stop at, why, why stop at race and continue to ju- and then flip on a dime and j- just outwardly judge, you know, you know, the gay community. And even he's like, like I mentioned, Francois Clemens was, gay, was closeted in, uh, during the filming of the show. And the main, and even Francois has admitted Fred never was condescending to him, never judgy of him, never judged him, always treated him as a friend. And the only reason he was concerned about the homopho- was about his homosexuality was funding for the show. Because ev- even though he was pushing the bounds against racism, he knew that that fight was already being f- – he knew that fight needed to be fought. He didn't. This was he. Uh, Mr. Rogers premiered one year before the Stonewall riots, so the, that's where the and that's kind of the the fire that ignited the gay um, rights, you know, rights activism was that was the, were the Stonewall riots in 1969, and 
gay, you know, gay acceptance didn't seem to really come into play until later in the eighties. And especially the activism of, of, of gay rights didn't cut, didn't really rise to prominence uh, culturally until the AIDS crisis when there was a, they were being victims and they were being, you know, essentially judged as worthy of death by a government that did not care for their, that did not like them and did not care for them. And sadly, I feel like Mr. That would have been a time for Mr. Rogers to tackle that tackle accepting gay people. But even then he knew that that was the line that would probably have cut his funding for good was audiences would not, would not support a Mr. Rogers that supported homosexuality and homosexual lifestyles. Maybe he he himself didn't. They never really tackled that. So there were some aspects that I wish they did talk more about. But from what I could tell, and then even further research, uh, some other journalists did do further research into whether or not uh, Fred Rogers was homophobic. And they found that there wasn't, he didn't, they never showed signs of homophobia. He, he, you know, he treated Francois Clemens as a friend and even acknowledged that trying to force uh, Clemens into a heterosexual relationship was a bad idea. But he, ne- you know, the only, but he never really, but like he was more a, he perpetuated the problem of stigmatizing the gay community by care, by realizing that that by not fighting that battle. But at the same time, my mom also brought this up when I mentioned it. Sometimes you can't fight every battle. Some battle you have to fight. You can only fight so many battles. And Fred was battling corporatization of children's entertainment and racism and all and the, and a rising tide even towards the end of his like they wrench, they don't shy away from the fact that people on Fox News and hardline conservative pundits talked about how Fred Rogers created the entitled entitlement generation in the in the form of uh, later Jaxers and millennials and that was never the case they completely they completely misconstrued Mr. Rogers point and that, and that's the whole thing is that you never felt entitlement from watching Mr. Rogers. You felt somebody you you saw an older figure, a father figure, an uncle figure, you know, a teacher figure, a paternal, a a a caring adult tell you that you are just fine the way you are, and that you are loved no matter what. There's a beautiful segment where. Daniel Tiger is talking about having feelings of doubt and if he was a mistake. And um, I forget her name. The actor, the live action actress uh, who appears on the show missed something or another. I'll admit I never actually watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I think that was a little bit after my time. Because by the 90s, he was already starting to um, kind of, kind of uh, be on the outs. That was towards the end of his tenure. And... So I I was more I my PBS days were the were Arthur and the Crap Brothers. That's what I got from PBS. I didn't really get much of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, but um, late uh, Lady Aberline Aberlin, and um, so yeah, she's singing the uh, uh, the song alongside Mr. Ro- alongside Daniel Tiger, and she is con- she is affirming to Daniel that he is not a mistake, that he is loved, that he's cared for. And at the same time, for, you know, Daniel Tiger still sings that he has doubts, that he thinks he's a mistake. So it, 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 he never shied away from 
the the you know the, that you will have those feelings of doubts. He wanted to affirm to you that you are still loved and that people still care about you and that you are and that you are you are the only you we will ever have. And that's why you know it we that's why there's that meme there's that meme that goes around with uh be like you know be somebody the Rogers can be proud of. Fred and Steve. What would you know if you be the kind of person be more like Steve Rogers, be more like Fred Rogers. And that that that's uh, that is a beautiful sentiment, and that's one I love. I always you know, have, seeing this documentary made me want to be a better person. It genuinely did, and I want to go. And I kind of want to go back and go on a Mister Rogers binge because I feel like I missed out on so much by having by being born at, at towards the tail end of his tenure, and. I feel like I missed out on so and the fact that he was so ahead of his time and he so progressive for a concert, you know, for a Presbyterian re- re- registered Republican. He was so willing to push forward so many progressive ideals is it's something you tend to forget that not everybody fits into their labels. People are you would never you would have suspected like Mr. Roger by watching his show. Mr. Roger was like some kind of hippie, some kind of, you know, pr- you know, very some kind of Jimmy Carter style guy, but he was, he was registered Republican all his life. He was a, he was a Christian man. He just understood how to reach children. And he was probably the best that we'll ever have at reaching kids and understanding them emotionally and encouraging who they are. Be more like Fred. Never not be Fred. Always be Fred. (laughs) Anyway, um, yeah, that. But like I said, this I need to rewatch. I think this year I'm going towards the tail end of the year. I'm going to go back and rewatch everything to finalize the list, so that I'm not just going off of the last time I saw it. So I can have a better idea of where the where everyone everything on the list fits and the order in which it and the and the order and finalize the order. But suffice to say that this is definitely going to be one of my picks of the year. And if you haven't yet, please go see this movie. If, if for nothing else, then for a reminder that you are special. You are the only you there will ever be. And that you are loved. Thanks, Fred. So on that note, uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about spinoffs. Into every generation, a slayer is born. One girl in all the world, a chosen one. And alongside her are the Watchers. We are the Watchers. Once more with Feeling is a 20th anniversary Buffy fancast where we gather and watch episodes of Buffy, discuss them, and release it every Tuesday. Grr. Arg. Myself tear up a bit at that tail end of that one, but uh, Mr. Rogers will do that to you. <laughs> um, so yeah, this the good, the best stuff from this week was stuff that's 
already set to come out on video pretty soon. I think Mr. Roger uh, won't be my neighbor is already out on video. And the new releases were pretty bad. But uh, we didn't talk about it when Ocean's 8 came out, I believe. Um, what was the topic for that week? It's been a, while. It's been a hot minute since uh, Ocean's 8. Uh, Star Solo. Here we go. Ocean's 8, that week was A24 because Hereditary came out. So uh, we, we are going to reference it because this week we're going to be talking about spinoffs. Now, you may, rec- you may know, that most, you know that most media spins off of each other. If there's a successful character, that, the, you know, then that character will see its own spinoff. And this went goes back as far as early days of radio, and probably goes back to literature as well. Uh, um, and so there are mainly three kinds of um, spinoffs that they mention: uh, name changes and retoolings, where you take that premise and you change some things around, but the premise stays the same. Supporting character will get a spinoff during the active course of the movies of the franchise's run, or Support a supporting character will get a spinoff after the franchise has ended, and you see this a lot in uh, television. That's you know things like the Norman Lear creations were all spinoffs from each other, and the Tommy Westfall universe has so many series that spin off from one another that tie together. So it's much easier and more prominent in serialized fiction than it is in um, film, and. It wasn't until film became more serialized that we started to see the spin-offs translate from television to film. And earlier and and from what I could tell the earliest technical spin-off, you know, from as far as as far as feature films go, where one film spun off not into a sequel, but a but an actual spin-off storyline. It wasn't a sequel so to speak. It it was considered a spin-off from that original film was shock treatment. 1978, the follow-up to Rocky Horror Picture Show was the first real film spin-off that wasn't a direct sequel to something. And that one was where they took uh, Janet and Brad and had them go through another adventure, but not a, to not as good success, but have a slightly smaller cult following than uh, Rocky Horror did. There's a reason they don't do shock treatment live, then, but they still did the Rocky Horror show. Um, after that, uh, the next one wasn't until 1984 with the infamous Supergirl movie, where they f- tried to spin off towards the tail end of the Superman franchise with another super with another DC hero. And then in that, the next year, they did Red Sonja, which was the spinoff of Conan. I think both Conan movies were done by that point, but Brigitte Nielsen was offered a spinoff role from the Conan adventures, and Conan did show up in Red Sonja, but it was not a sequel to Conan. It was its own thing. So those were kind of the early spinoffs. That same time period, 84 and 85, is also when we saw the first Star Wars spinoff. Now, now the holiday special wasn't a spinoff, but the first real spinoff of the Star Wars franchise with the Ewok adventure series. And those... Were those while they were TV movies, they are still considered you know one of the earlier spinoffs from a major franchise. And we didn't really see we don't see much more of this until the '90s when we've got um, 
uh, police. Uh, what was it? Um, what's the franchise? It was Jackie Chan's franchise, and Michelle Yeoh spun off from it. It's the, the police story. Uh, the Hong Kong franchise police story starring Jackie Chan saw a spinoff starring Michelle Yeoh uh, during her early time as a stunt woman and a martial artist. And she got her own spinoff that sometimes classified as a sequel, but Once a Cop is its own story that is not a direct sequel to the police story uh, s- series. Uh, a little later on in the 90s, you saw... Technic, not tech, not really a sequel, somewhat of a sequel, but it's more of a spinoff. U.S. Marshals got spun off from the live a- from the film adaptation of the series *The Fugitive*, and so you gave, they saw that um, even at the time they could tell that people really gravitated towards Tommy Lee Jones' character, and they spun him off into his own movie with U.S. Marshals, where he was the star, not Harrison Ford. I uh, can't speak to how much that worked compared to *The Fugitive*. I haven't seen it. Um, 1999, direct-to-video. You see a lot of direct-to-video spinoffs. We'll get into that. But uh, 1999 saw Bartok the Magnificent, which was a sequel but mainly a spinoff from the Anastasia movie in 1997, where Bartok the Bat was given his own animated film completely unrelated to Anastasia, just its own thing with Bartok on his own adventure. Outside of the whole Anastasia thing. I don't even think Anastasia is brought up that much in the movie. I haven't seen it. I know that's a big thing of, for uh, 90s kids. Was that was that movie that they loved that movie. But I honestly... I liked Anastasia well enough. But I never had any interest in seeing Bartok the Magnificent when I was growing up. 2000 saw way more spinoffs and feature film. You had... Uh, just to name a few. Beauty Shop. Spun off from Barbershop. Bruno. Another spin-off, which was more an adaptation from the uh, Dolly G show, because that was another character. But, you know, that was te- kind of spun off from the success of um, of Borat, which was another Ali G show character that Barrett and Cohen did. Scorpion King spun off, if it, you know, one of the more famous spin-offs from The Mummy. Get Him to the Greek was a spin-off of Forgetting Sarah Marshall, taking the uh, Russell Brand character and giving him his own movie. You see this a lot in kids' movies, though, with Puss in Boots, Penguins of Madagascar, Minions, Planes, Shaun the Sheep. So many kids' franchises will gladly spin off into their own thing because, hey, kids don't care. Kids will see anything. They like this thing. Give them more of this thing. Everyone likes Puss in Boots. Give them more Puss in Boots. And so you see a Puss in Boots spinoff movie. Uh, One of the most infamous... Uh, spinoff series was the American Pie direct-to-video series, where they where the only returning actor seemed to be Eugene Levy, and every time and it was all just really lazy uh, sex comedies trying to you know trying to milk the teat of of the of the success of American Pie, and if I, that's probably one of the reasons nobody cared about American Wedding. Because they had already milked the franchise dry and lost all of their interest thanks to those direct-to-video sequels. And we're seeing a major push nowadays. Fantastic Beast is a Harry Potter, you know, a successful Harry Potter spinoff. Ocean's 8 this year. The Star Wars story, you know, the uh, Star Wars story spinoffs are, uh, you know, are the, the anthology movies are uh, spinoffs from the main Star Wars series. But the main, the main place you see spinoffs is in superhero movies. 
and that is and that plays into the fact that superhero fiction superhero movies have become more serialized and so you get Elektra spinning off from Daredevil the aforementioned Supergirl the Spider-Man homecoming in Black Panther spot, took the characters that were introduced in Civil War and spun them off into their own films the Wolver, you know the Wolverine series was spun off from the X-Men as was Deadpool and even DC will do it. Uh, Wonder Woman, The Flash, and Aquaman were all follow-ups to introductions in Batman v Superman and the Justice League movie. So, you're what you're seeing more now is you'll introduce a character in one film and spin them off into their own movie if audiences like that. So, Black Panther and Spider-Man did well in Civil War. Audiences loved them, so they gave them the green light to have their own spin-offs. And we're seeing it now in horror with Annabelle the Nun and even the Paranormal Activity series had a spinoff featuring um, a, Hispa- you know, a, main, a main Hispanic cast with the Marked Ones. So, and, and a lot of, if you look to a lot of uh, direct-to-video horror movies, sometimes they will, sometimes they won't continue the story. It'll be more of a spinoff than a direct sequel. That's why that's, that's why the term spinoff is also is also uh, synonymous with this term sidequel because it's not a sequel, it's not sequential. It is taken off to the side. It's this side story from the main story. That's why it's not a prequel sequel. It's a sidequel. You know where they, they have so many names for that. Prequel is before the movie. Midquel takes place during the previous movie. You see that a lot in Disney. Sequel takes place after, and now sidequel takes place alongside or, you know, in conjunction with the main storyline. <laughs> um, but the question is, do spinoffs work? Do we need spinoffs? And I can't speak for Once Upon a Cop. I still need to see that and see its relation to the police story movies. But people liked it, uh, from what I can tell. The MCU has shown that they don't need to introduce characters in solo movies and let, you know all the time they can, can they can have characters introduced in you know outside of sequential order and have characters introduced in one movie and then have them carry over to a next movie and then maybe have their own solo project they still haven't done that with um black widow even though that's been a thing people have wanted since the very inception of the marvel cinematic universe but it is you know it is you know, MCU has shown that the sequentialness, you know, the sequential nature of filmmaking nowadays can afford good spin-off movies. Even Ocean's 8 was a good movie even as a spin-off from the Ocean's franchise. It just that franchise is so tired that it probably would have been better to have no relation at all. So, the problem with spin-offs is they're a corporate cash grab. They are the they are the business side of filmmaking. Uh, short and sweet. A producer, a an executive, sees the success of one thing and says, we need more of this. So take this minor character, give them their own movie. And it works well enough that there are like five, six Scorpion King movies. And <laughs> they don't even star the rock. Rock is so far gone from that. Like those, a lot of those direct-to-video, long-after-the-fact movies are pretty much spinoffs. Like, Tooth Fairy 2 didn't, I don't know, had really much of anything to do with Tooth Fairy 1. And Jingle All the Way 2 was basically just a retelling. That's what they mean by retooling. Name changes and retoolings. 
That J- Jingle All the Way Two is a spinoff, not a direct sequel. That's a different. That's that's the that's kind of what they mean. So a lot of things that are considered sequels that are defined as sequels are technically spinoffs or sidequels. So depending, so the the real definition of a sequel is the storyline from the previous movie is continued. Bad as it is, Christmas Story Two continues the story from a Christmas Story One. Jingle All the Way Two is the same movie retold with different characters. It is a spinoff, not a sequel. Same with uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Eddie's Eddie's Tropical Vacation, or whatever, or something. Yeah, the one where they gave um, Randy Quaid his own movie, uh, which was yeah, that was bad. So yeah, they gave Randy Quaid his own spinoff, which I forgot to mention from the National Lampoon series because they, apparently they were that desperate. And, like I said, sometimes they can work. Shaun the Sheep was a spinoff of characters introduced in other Aardman uh, shows that turned into a series that turned into a movie. And they're even doing a follow-up movie pretty in the, coming, in the next coming years. So, it can work. If you have a good character and you have a good story in mind for them, it can work. Things like Beauty Shop, Get Him to the Greek, um... And now Fantastic Beasts, you're basically trying to recapture the money from the previous franchise and you're not doing something new with it. You're not doing anything unique or interesting with this thing. You're just trying to recreate the thing that made you money. And that's not what, that's mostly not what people want. That's why I don't like the, where the Fantastic Beasts franchise is going because it's just becoming more Harry Potter. I would much rather have a natural, you know, a faux documentary style nature, nature, you know, nature series where uh, Newt Scamander is, uh, is David Attenborough for the Wizarding World. Or I would much rather have other spinoffs from the Wizarding World. Tell stories based in America. Tell stories based in Africa and Asia. Tell stories about somebody other than that, other than Hogwarts. Spit true, make true spinoffs. Do a Quidditch sports movie for all we care. Do something. We do something more than what you're doing. We don't, we've got eight Harry Potter movies. You can tell new stories, but producers don't want to hear that. They don't want to put, put creative energy into something that isn't going to earn them boatloads of money. And that's kind of the inherent inherent issue with corporatized Hollywood, which has always been an issue with corporate Hollywood, which is they, when the bottom line takes precedence over the create over creativity, that's when you start, that's when people start to lose interest. And as much as they they are making more money, more and more money than they ever have before, even with the adjustments for inflation, that bubble is going to burst. And every, every film critic I follow has always said that the bubble is going to burst. They aren't prepared to break their habits because they're making money now. And that's what's important. How many times have we heard, you know, crit, you know media critics, you know, talk about this issue. Jim Sterling does it with the gaming industry the whole, all the time. These bubbles burst. And producers don't care enough to, to follow these bubbles. They only follow trends and they follow the money. So, anyway, 
that that's all I got. That's all I really have on spinoffs. It's a very shallow topic, ultimately, but that, you know, it, it's one that's worth mentioning. That spinoffs can work. They don't because there's not a lot of create creative effort put into it. That's why you get things like planes and minions and and the Scorpion King sequels, where it's whatever good you good ideas you had go completely get completely lost because you care more about trying to make a spin-off. They they work better in TV anyway, like the Norman Lear series. Every Norman Lear series has a tie back to another Norman Lear series because a character was introduced on one series and spun off into their own series. Norman Lear knew how to do spin-offs. Spin-offs work way better for television. Look at the Law and Order franchise, look at the Chicago franchise. Dick Wolf is the new is Norman Lear for dramas that uh, as opposed to comedies. A good a good a good creator can do spin-offs. It does not work as well for film because film take up film takes up much more time and takes much longer to produce than television. So trying to do cash grabs feels much more apparent in film than it does on TV. And that's all my piece on the subject. So let's start getting into the other segments of the podcast, shall we? And now a stopover on Patreon Corner. So I mentioned previously in the Peppermint review that I did plan on doing an Electra thing. I was going to watch it for Make a Better Movie. I wanted to do a tie-in to uh, pep- to Peppermint, so the best option was Electra. Last time Jennifer Garner did action on film. I missed my shot, sadly. I just time got away from me, and so I ended up missing it. But I did manage to get a new Munch Along Out, which is for... The one of my worst films of 2012, I think my number two, and that's The Devil Inside. If you follow um, Film Brain, I think I might give him a chance again after after my uh, little tantrum, for lack of a better word for it, for my falling out with a lot of people after the whole um, the Fox acquisition by Disney. Uh, I think I might give some people another shot, uh, uh, Redis and um, and um, Film Brain. I'm not gonna. I don't need to follow. Uh, I may give. I may give Daniels a shot. Uh, I think. It, I think it's just the quick and easy joke. And I probably shouldn't hold people. You know, I probably shouldn't hold a grudge for people when um, when it was just a poor, a joke in poor taste. In fact, I probably owe Film Brain an apology. You know what? I do owe Film Brain an apology. After I record this, I'm gonna send him one uh, private. Ma- I'll DM him an apology. Say, look, dude, I I do not need. I did not mean to, you know, take it, take out my aggression on you. It's just, I, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I feel like that joke is very, it, it, it punches down at people who have no control over the issue, over, over what the real issue is. And I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a just a bad joke. And I just saw it too many times that day. So I'll send him a message. I like Matt. I really do like Matt. He's a, He's he's a decent he's a decent he's one of my inspirations. So I shouldn't hold a grudge for a bad joke. You know, it's, it's not like he makes successively successful bad jokes every week. <laughs> Don't walk. Anyway, um, 
He did the devil. In, point is, Matthew Buck also covered the devil inside. And all you need to know about the devil inside is it is trash. It is one of the worst parts of um, found foot. It was one of the lowest parts of the found footage craze in the in the early aughts. After the success of Paranormal Activity, so many of those really bad found footage horror movies came out in the aughts and aught tens at the teens and. Devil Inside is one of the worst still. That, is, that and Chernobyl Diaries are two of the worst found footage horror movies I've ever seen. Devil Inside is a lazy exorcist movie, exorcism movie that, complete, that com- tries to play itself super duper seriously and then ends the movie by telling people to go to a website. Ends the movie by telling people to go to a website. That, the movie has the balls. To just end it short, you 70 minutes. 70 minutes of the movie ends with telling you to go to a website, pretending it's a real thing. It is such utter trash. And if you want to hear me tear it apart, go check me out on Patreon. And this is also a reminder for, for new listeners. My Patreon setup is much more in line with uh, the current setup for the Jimquisition. There are no tiers. Pay what you want. You get access. You get thanks. So I've done away with the tier system, pay as little as a dollar a month, and you get access to all of the Make a Better movie and much along archives. And I'll be sure to share um, to share um, your support with the, for the podcast on, on the main feed. And be thank- you'll be thanked on every episode, both this and Make a Better movie and much along. You'll be you'll be sure your thanks is appreciated. And once again, even if you can't support me on Patreon, I would love to hear back from you. And I'll get into that more in the blog. But suffice to say that uh, all I could get to this past week was a munch along for the devil inside. And then this week I'm going to focus on doing a make a better movie. That way I have ten of each. And then ne- and then the week after next I'm going to try and do one one of bo- one of each episode per week again. Because uh, I've kind of, you know, as you've noticed, if you've been, fo- for those who have since no- nobody's been following the Patreon, I've been be- been very hit or miss on everything in the last couple of weeks. So it, you know, it's 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 been touch and go. I think I'm making. I think the part of it is making content for people who aren't listening to it. So you know what? After I get to the ten episodes of each, I'm gonna take a break and. After we're after, and I'll wait until I actually start getting patrons to, uh, so that I feel like I'm making content for somebody. Because um, yeah, you don't. I don't want to overwork myself if I don't need to. Anyway, um, so yeah, next next week we're gonna do make a better movie on Alien versus Predator to tie into the new Predator movie. Um, it was either I was either that or maybe Predators. Um, uh, but I think Alien vs. Predator has more possibility for make a better movie. And so we'll, that'll be for next week. And that's all I got for this week. Once again, you can check out all the archive available to you uh, at, by, just by donating as little as a dollar a month. And your support is greatly appreciated. That's patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. And now the Popcorn Junkie checks in with this week's box office report. This week's box office report shouldn't be too surprising. Uh, dropping out of the top seven, we've got Alpha dropping down to number nine, and Operation Finale dropping down from number five to number eight. Uh, and our the only other premiere, one I couldn't get to, was God Bless the Broken Road, 
which is from Free? Free production? Freestyle releasing. And apparently that this is their only release so far. Uh, it's not even showing up on Box Office Mojo as one of their uh, movies, which is sad. That's just sad. But, but that one is... Um, while it takes its title from a Rascal Flatts song, is a par- has nothing to do with the premise of that song. It is just another Christploitation movie. So I may get to that down the line when they're, if, if, if it's still showing and I don't have as much on my plate. Uh, uh, I'm gonna, uh, just to give a, a heads up during the trailer talk, I got another full plate next week, and that's just with new releases. So I may get to that. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know. I, I mean, I hate to pay money to see a middling Christploitation movie, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, so, yeah, dropping. So, our new number seven this week was last week's number six, and that is Disney's Christopher Robin, which brought in three, $3.1 million, bringing its domestic gross up to $91 million, and its world gross, worldwide gross up to $142 million, which means it made back its budget. It just could not make, it could not see a profit. Sadly, this was not a runaway success, but it's got still got legs. People are still supporting this movie not more, much more domestically. I'm surprised. I'm surprised uh, the UK hasn't uh, supported this too much. Let me see the foreign numbers. I'm assuming the UK is probably the highest grossing besides the US. Yep, four, but it's only 14 million. So I guess pe- the UK is isn't uh, as interested in seeing their uh, million classics from the Disney perspective. I don't know. I don't. I, if you're in the UK, give me your give me your thoughts on how Disney has handled Winnie the Pooh and what you thought of this movie. I'm be, I'm definitely curious to hear there. Uh, number six was number three from last week, and that's Mission Impossible Fallout, bringing in three point eight million dollars. So it's finally starting to see more of a drop. But people, hey, it made back its money. It can coast. This movie can coast, knowing full well that there's going to be a Mission Impossible Seven in the horizon. Hell, this may be one of those kind of franchises that does see another spinoff once Tom Cruise feels um, feels like, feels like he doesn't want to uh, continue doing uh, action movies. You know, but your the human body gets old. Sometimes you can't do it anymore. So maybe he'll see. Uh, maybe he'll finally uh, tra- you know retire from action. We'll see. Uh, number five was last week's number four, and that's Searching, which brought in four and a half million dollars this weekend. Bringing its domestic total up to fourteen million, and its foreign gross uh, com- combined with its foreign gross up to thirty-two million dollars. Like I mentioned, it doesn't have a budget listed, but compared to Unfriended, which cost a million dollars, I'm assuming it probably didn't cost more than five. It got John Cho and Deborah Messing. I can't imagine that they would push this over five million dollars. So this is a runaway success for them. This whole screen share um, uh, format. We'll see where it goes, but searching has proven to be just uh, not as not as successful as Unfriended. Maybe more. Let me see. How did the Unfriended series, uh, movies do? Unfriended one made thirty two million. Uh, Dark Web has only made eight. Uh, Sixty four overall uh, on a million dollar budget, and then Unfriended two has only brought in has barely has only brought in nine. So even though both both are successful, oh, um, there's definitely a precipitous drop from one to two. People are sick of the gimmick. Uh, meanwhile, searching has done more with the gimmick and is more in line with that uh, with the first unfriended, and and it and uh, that's good because 
it's a, it deserves the praise it get it, it deserves all of the praise because it does more than the than either unfriended movie did with this format. Number four is last week's number two, and that's the Meg, which brought in six million dollars this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to one thirty one and a half, and worldwide gross almost four hundred and ninety two million dollars, four hundred ninety one point nine. This continues to be one of the highest grossing movies of the summer. Uh, probably will go down as one of the highest grossing of the year. And that's all due to China. China loves this movie. $151 million alone China made for this movie. So people, China, China likes it. So, and I mean, it's not like there's, um, it's all like, I mean, that's the whole thing. It's set in China, caters to China. So Chinese audiences, they don't care. They don't care that it's bad. They care that, 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 that they're being paid attention to and that, they, that, that it's about them for the most part. And then it's got some famous people that they recognize. So there you go. Number three this week was of new premiere, Peppermint, which brought in $13.2 million. million uh, and an extra, and, and with a little bit extra from the foreign markets, it got $14.6 million on a budget of 25. So it couldn't make back its budget opening weekend. We'll see if it has the legs to at least make back its budget. I doubt it'll be a full-fledged bomb. I think it's already made back enough money to be to not be considered a bomb. We'll see. We'll see how far it drops next week. But yeah, people were not as into this one. Number dropping down from number 2 and dropping down to number 2, finally losing its number 1 slot after 3 weeks in a row. It's Crazy Rich Asians bringing in 13.6 million dollars, bringing its domestic gross up to 136 million. And it's worldwide gross up to 164 million. So yeah, weird thing. Apparently, China is more into giant sharks than they are into. Oh, oh, this didn't get a Chinese release. Oh, that explain uh, that explains it. China did not like this movie. Apparently, they did not want to see it. I guess because it's based in Singapore or something. I don't know. I don't know, but it's not getting a. It does not seem to have a Chinese release at all. Uh. The highest grosser besides uh, America for this was Australia. Even the UK isn't showing it. That's bizarre. Well, at least American audiences are showing it the love it deserves. Hopefully it can get some wider distribution. I don't know what the deal is on that end, but Crazy Rich Asians made, made its money and it deserves it. And, I, and it, hopefully we get to see more films like this in the future. And less films like our number one movie, bringing in $53.5 million dollars. Domestically and international and com- and internationally, making a hundred and thirty-one million dollars. It's opening weekend. It's the Nun. The Nun made bank. It's opening weekend. Twenty-two million dollars to make, and it's pff, how many times? How many times more? Um, I think it's what's what's five times twenty-two, and it's one hundred and ten, right? Uh, 132 nearly six times its budget opening weekend i don't get the appeal i don't i don't get it i don't i don't get it somebody somebody please explain to me help me understand why this is a thing i don't i don't get it i don't is it just that it's stupid that people 
just it's just because I can understand if it's just the dumb fun. I I feel like I need just need the confirmation that hey, we know it's bad. We're not supporting it because it's good. We're supporting it because we're having fun. And like I've always, like I said last week, as long as it's good, it could either be good. You know, if it's gonna be if it's not gonna be fun, it can be good. If it's not gonna be good, it can be fun. So if it's, this is fun for people, have at it. But. I can't imagine supporting this franchise as genuinely good horror. Ugh, I'm giving myself a headache. All right, that's it for the box office report. Let's get into the trailers. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. Like I mentioned, I have a fuller plate this next week. I've got four wide releases because, as it turns out, my preview was a bit off. White Boy Rick is not opening on the 21st like I like I assumed it would opening wide. I am getting to see it come, come this weekend. So on the 14th is when I'll get to see White Boy Rick, which will be interesting. So I have four movies slated for wide release this weekend and we're going to talk about the big one first and that is Shane Black's The Predator Do you know what my job description is? Isn't that Sterling K. Brown? I'm an acquisition I think that's Sterling K. Brown which is good I like him and I catch what falls out of the sky and I know and then there's Olivia Munn I haven't seen her in forever. Tell me about the mission. Did you see anything unusual? It's above our bay green. I get a cookie now. <laughs> On September 14th. Look, I get it. Something went down in Mexico. Nobody wants any witnesses. We need to know if you and your man pose a threat. We're rangers. Hey, Baxley, if your mom's vagina were a video game, it'd be rated E. <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> oh, hey, Keegan. Hey, Keegan. Interesting to see you here as a, like an, ar- like an army man. ranger or something, some kind of military. Oh, this is so bloody. From Shane Black. Predators just don't sit around making hats out of rib cages. They conquered space. But that's not what's on the horizon. Should I be worried? Probably. I think you know what is on the ship. <laughs> the ultimate predators. Light him up! We may die. So are they tying into the We're whole Predalien thing from... Come and get us, motherfucker. From Predators, Evan versus Predators, The Hunt. Has it evolved? So yeah, like I mentioned, Shane Black, um... In the, pre- in the preview last week, Shane Black is actually returning to the franchise uh, after um, writing the first writing on the first Predator screenplay, 
and here he gets to direct it. But I have there has been some controversy this uh, over Shane Black allowing you know having hiring an actor with a known um, history of pedophilia and Olivia Munn being the one to challenge him to remove the scene of between her and this uh, you know this child molester this. Uh, pedophile uh i'm i'm not sure what his actual um conviction was but apparently shane black apparently there is a there are definitely contingent of people who are like well why did shane black hire him in the first place did he know is it was somebody he worked with buddy and he still hired and he still hired him and made olivia munn do the scene with him despite the fact that they're on a set that features a prominent child actor so there's some controversy behind the scenes, but we'll see how he does uh, in the with the film itself. Um, like I said, it's uh, it's it's hard to say uh, with Shane Black. The last time he handled a franchise thing, it was Iron Man three, and oof, that was bad. But he may be do be- he may do better with the Predator. Um, now he's now he's not kind of bottled into the Marvel formula. He's allowed to be bloody and violent and edgy i don't know he may this may turn out to like the whole keegan michael key like edgelord joke things it may not play as well but hey it may be but hey it's definitely in line with that original predator you know yo hey you got a big pussy hey you got a big pussy (laughs) uh so yeah it's not like the first predator was like all, you know, it was all, you know, it wasn't, yeah, but that was, that was one of the go-to sort of dude bro movies of the time. And it still holds up for the most part as an, as a sci-fi action movie. So we'll see how he does, uh, doing like a darker horror tinted action movie. Uh, next up, uh, we've got the latest from Paul Feig and that is, uh, Anna, Anna Kendrick and, and Blake Lively in A Simple Favor. A few weeks ago, I met Emily, this wonderful, elegant person. Our sons brought us Anna Kendrick as a mom. I need to get used to that. I think you're joking, but great. Every time we do this, I feel so high tone. <laughs> Want to trade confessions? No, no. Come on. That's the wildest thing you've ever done. She is an enigma, my wife. And get close to her. There's Henry Golding. She's like a beautiful ghost. Did you just take my picture? Erase it. I guess I'm probably not the kind of person you're normally friends with. Oh, you do not want to be friends with me. Trust me. From the director's darker side of director I Paul Feig. Uh, are you okay? I'm fine, but I, I do need just a, a simple favor. Can you come over? Yeah. Five days ago. Emily went missing. This September. I warn you, you go poking around in her past, you're gonna find something that is terrifying. She was not a normal person like you or me. I've never seen such a beautiful girl wanna be so invisible. I smell her, Sean. I smell her perfume like a ghost. It's just you being paranoid. I saw my mom. She told me to say hi to Stephanie. What happened to 
Emily. Were you aware that he took out an extra $4 million life insurance policy on Emily before she disappeared? People do terrible things for their own reasons. They thought you knew more than you were letting on. This is kind of giving me Gone Girl vibes. It'd be interesting to see how Paul Feig handles this sort of um, darker comedy. Uh, If it is a comedy, it may be full. It may be a full-on drama uh, based on the trailer. So we'll wait. We'll have to wait and see. We'll see this coming week. And like I mentioned, White Boy Rick is is seeing a wider release this weekend. So let's take a look at that trailer for that. How can we stay there? I don't know what I, I saw something recently that completely completely phoned in the, the older, um, Oh, it's the devil inside. The devil inside tried to do like old VHS, uh, footage. And it, it was clearly shot on an HD camera. Love this trailer. Hi, Bruce. I love that line. I I don't know why. I just love the idea of Mike Matthew McConaughey saying, "We're going for custard." Yeah, this is the kid's first movie. Break it down. The dime rocks. Get yourself a crew and offload it before long. People know you're legit. It's Ricky. He won. You're gonna get in too deep. They're never gonna let you out. You talk. I'm no. Eight pounds, fourteen ounces. Such a way you were born. Yeah, this is trailers. This is how you do a trailer. This really is such a a dynamic, dynamic sort of preview of what to expect from this movie. I know the players, man. I know the game. Come on, Dad. I can do this. We can do this. It'll be interesting to see how this actor does for his first role. Like they could, this could easily be a career-defining performance. You know, as like an introduction. It'll be interesting to see how he does. Witness the rise of America's youngest hustler, dealer, kingpin, informant. Would you believe a 15-year-old kid legend to the federal government? But he was. White boy Rick. Based on the true story. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I, like I said, I this Sony did this to kind of oh, I did not know Sony Pictures is also doing the front runner. Interesting. Like I said, I have I have high hopes for Sony. I know they can do good, and it's gonna it. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see if this does better than Alpha. Alpha got the shaft, but I know Sony is capable of doing good things. So. I think it depends on which subsidiary company is doing the stuff because this is Sony Pictures and not uh, Columbia. I don't know. It, there's, I know there's differences between the companies and what they provide and what they produce. 
But uh, I like I like this. I'm interested to see how it turns out. Uh, I don't know if it'll be good, but I do know I'm interested in seeing how it turns out. And then last and certainly least, it's Pure Flix's a, a, a new a new biopic, which is basically just a remake with more Christ from the last time we saw the story of Louis Zamperini, Unbroken Path to Redemption, which on this one YouTube channel has listed it as Unbroken 2, even though it has no relation to the last one. Unbroken Path to Redemption. Wait. Universal is co-producing this. So is it a sequel? Bless you, Lewis. Welcome home. Because I know they produced the last one. Torrance was praying for your safety. It was just the beginning. Miracles didn't save me, Padre. A couple of atomic bombs didn't. I got questions. You're Louis Zambrini, aren't you? Thank you. For what? For preserving the yeah. world for silly girls like me. Nothing about this looks good. Witness the next chapter. Ugh. People from all over the country want to know if you're going to... Okay, it's not a true sequel. It's a spiritual successor. What's this? If you're going to train for London, you have to do it right. Just go nice and easy, see if you can make it all the way around. You think you can run a four-seven mile again? I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't. Production Yeah, it's just tied into Universal Pictures, I think, because they own the rights to the Louis Zamperini story. Although, maybe Pure Flix has a deal with them. Are you sleeping well? You're having any night sweats or nightmares? I just thought I'd be able to forget everything. I want to go home. There is no home. Yeah, making making Billy Graham some kind of hero figure. That uh, it's definitely not going to be. We'll see how bad it is. It's definitely not going to be as good as as they as Angelina Jolie's, which is saying something because that was just middle of the road. What are you going to say to them? Yeah, like I said, this we saw this movie. Angelina Jolie did it fine. It it just isn't. We didn't need another one of these. We didn't. It's not like what? What do we gain from seeing him? Like this is this one. This is just them placating to their crowd. It's not. I, I I'm sorry. I'm they, okay. They do have a multi-year distribution deal with Universal Pictures. That's why we are seeing the Universal logo on it. So thanks, Universal, for tying your name to this trash. Probably the only reason they got access to the to the Louis Zamperini story is because they because Universal is doing a deal with them. Thanks for nothing, Universal. You you assholes. Yeah, you you said it, Mama. You said it, Mama Boots. Tell you tell you tell. Universal Pictures, how wrong they are. 
So yeah, those are going to be my movies for next week. And that about does it for this week, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out and check out all of our other fine programming, you can favorite the website and be sure to whitelist us on your ad blockers to let... And there you can not only find us, but um, this podcast, but also... Living in the Stacks, my uh, book club podcast that I do every other week. Donna's stuff with um, Snarkast, uh, like Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, Once More with Feeling, and The Family Business, all kinds of stuff. Um, I need to, I, we do need to get um, a better understanding of uh, who's sharing what on the website. Uh, I, I, I want to talk about who's doing new releases of everything. And I would love to get more new producers onto the website as well. So if you're listening to this and you're a producer as well and you would like to join a small network uh, in hopes of making it bigger and helping it grow, then send us an email. Send all your inquiries to gumbycatnetworks at gmail.com and we'll keep in touch. Uh, aside from the website, you can also find us on all kinds of uh, podcast providers. We're on uh, Spotify. We're on Apple. We're on Google Play, uh, iHeartRadio. We're all kinds of places. So as long as you're seeing my orange mug chomping on popcorn staring at the screen and you're seeing the Gumby Cat logo and we're over 100 uh, episodes, then you're good. And be sure to give us a five-star rating and review and to let people know, hey, you like this show. And uh, you can also do so by sharing us on your social media. The social media home for Popcorn Junkie is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. That's where all the big announcements are going to come from. There's also um, my Twitter account, at cornjunkiepod. That's where I'm the most active. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at popcornjunkiepodcast. And you can also find me on the... I did make sure to nab uh, at, ma- at popcornjunkie at mastodon.social. Uh, I'm not as active on Mastodon just because it's such a smaller platform for the moment. But if you want to head over from Twitter to Mastodon to get away from, you know, the tw- you know from the inherent issues with Twitter, then come join us, see if you like it, and hopefully we can find a much better platform. Uh, otherwise... Yeah, you can also find me on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. There's where that's where you'll hear my initial reactions to new releases, and you get and you can under and you can get a preview of what to expect from the next episode. Uh, otherwise, you can always send your messages. I would love to do a segment for where I hear where I give audience feedback. I would wa- I want to hear from you if you are listening to this and you have thoughts on the movies I reviewed. If you have disagreements with something. Like I mentioned, if you're a fan of The Nun and The Conjuring franchise and you want to explain why you are and you want to tell me what it is that appeals to you, I want to share your thoughts. I want a better understanding of where the audiences are coming from. So be sure to send all of that to, to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com and, if you, and let me know in the wording of the message that you give me permission to use your your thoughts on the on the next episode. I want your explicit permission to use it on the on the on the show and otherwise because otherwise I'm just going to talk to you privately. I don't want to like if you want to if you want to hear your thoughts on the show, you have to let me know. So if you want to hear your thoughts on the show, you got to let me know. So that so I think that about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey and we're going to miss you, Bert. 
but thanks for all the memories. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantarts.com for more of his artwork. Don't mind the cat. He the cat is the cat is playing with herself. You good over there, mama? You good over there? Yeah, I'm not sure what she's doing, but yeah, you might be hearing her in the background. <laughs>